welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction I'm talking today about the module Talc Advanced Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning of Personalised Care. I'm going to be talking about the chapter called Empowering Explanations for Persistent or Functional Symptoms. Now, these kinds of symptoms are very common in primary care and indeed in many secondary care clinics. There's been a lot of new research which will help us to understand both how these symptoms arise and how best to create effective explanations which will help patients to understand their condition. This information, particularly because much of it is new to some clinicians, is quite complex. So there's going to be two parts. In this podcast, I'm going to talk about the background to modern ideas about symptoms that used to be called medically unexplained symptoms. And in the second podcast, I'm going to concentrate on how to explain such syndromes in ways that help clinicians and patients move forwards. When we think about persistent or functional symptoms, we can often get a bit confused about what we're really talking about. We have to remember that these experiences cause very deep suffering to many patients. And I'd like to quote Howard Brody in Stories of Sickness, who said, When we give meaning to the experience of sick persons, let us take their suffering and their needs into account. Let us avoid giving meaning to illness that merely makes us feel better or makes us feel safer at the cost of increasing the suffering of the ill person. Many clinicians, and indeed many patients, believe that if there are persistent physical symptoms, there must be something amiss that will show up on physical examination, in physical blood tests, or in some kind of imaging process. Many even believe that if such investigations are normal, as they often are, it means that clinicians should keep on doing tests until we find the answer. A second concept, shared by many, is that the absence of abnormality on testing or examination, in other words, when tests or examinations are normal, means that the symptoms are medically unexplained. This may also mean that wellness or health are somehow seen as merely the same thing as no physical abnormalities present. All these beliefs are no longer tenable because the validity of such ideas has not been confirmed by research and is not borne out by long clinical experience. The idea that symptoms in the absence of physical findings are unexplained and unexplainable, or that health is merely the absence of physical abnormality, has now been superseded by a much deeper understanding of what makes symptoms persist. And neuroscience has brought many new insights into this. All clinicians will benefit from sharing this new understanding, using it to inform themselves, their patients, and to assist in planning care with patients. This helps to avoid the situation where the clinician becomes overwhelmed by the patient's own feelings of helplessness and frustration, which can happen as a result of transference, 
the patient's own feelings of helplessness and frustration arising, of course, because they have persistent, difficult symptoms. Clinicians are often rather concerned that patients expect to be fully cured of their pain or other symptoms. In fact, what people mainly want is to be fully listened to with attention and care, which uses all the active listening skills described in the module TALC, Skills for Effective Information Gathering. Patients also need to feel understood and accepted using the skills from TALC, Skills for Building Effective Relationships, and to work with a clinician who consistently cares for them over time. It is important not to generalise about persistent symptoms. All patients are different and explanations and care plans need to be personalised for the specific needs of each individual. Sensitivity and negotiating skills are required for clinicians to work collaboratively with their patients, together with a willingness to try things out and to review progress regularly. Patients do like to have reasonable explanations for their symptoms and this chapter mainly focuses on this aspect of the consultation. There are three loosely distinct patterns of symptoms that occur in the absence of abnormalities on examination or testing. And these are number one, shorter term symptoms with a low probability of disease. These are recognised by the absence of red flags or signs of recognised disease, combined with positive pointers to a functional disorder. Some patients with such symptoms may develop disease over time and the incidence varies between 5 and 10% depending on the context and depending on which research studies you look at. It's reasonable to offer reassurance and expectant management such as this usually settles with time but that needs to be combined with very careful follow-up and very clear safety netting arrangements. Number two functional syndromes with symptoms that overlap and cluster together, for example, irritable bowel syndrome or atypical facial pain syndrome. All specialist clinics have their own examples of these syndromes. In this situation, explanations that make sense to patients, careful attention to symptom control and follow-up with continuity of care are often very helpful ways forwards. Three, multiple physical symptoms which cause distress and alteration of behaviour. These syndromes have considerable impact on daily life, resulting in patients frequently seeking help from clinicians. What's needed here is non-stigmatising explanation, long-term continuity of care and an accepting and caring attitude from the clinician. You might want to look at the chapter called how to enjoy those patients with really long-term problems, the positive bathe method, for more information about this. The rest of this podcast is going to concern itself mainly with how these symptoms arise. Most systems in the body can give rise to symptoms that can be distressing and even very severe without any structural deficit or anything abnormal on blood testing. It's actually thought that about one in four people seen in primary care have such symptoms and about one in three of those attending neurology clinics. All hospital outpatient clinical staff recognise such symptom complex within their own specialty. It has been estimated that about 52% of new referrals in secondary care and 25% of those frequently attending clinics have such syndromes with tests and investigations remaining normal.
multiple referrals and investigations often yield little benefit to the patient's overall health. Now, these symptom complexes have been referred to by a variety of terms, including medically unexplained symptoms, persistent physical symptoms, chronic pain syndromes, chronic pelvic pain, somatization, functional symptoms, symptoms with low probability of disease, multiple physical symptoms, bodily distress disorder. I'm sure there'll be some new ones coming along in future. The most neutral and the currently preferred term is persistent physical symptoms. This term is wide ranging, including any such symptoms, and does not imply that the patient's symptoms are somehow not real. Patients often feel extremely frustrated or even insulted by the term medically unexplained symptoms because to them it can feel as though that's a way of saying it's all in your head or that their suffering is imaginary. Their suffering and their symptoms are real, they're distressing, they're usually explainable, listen to my second podcast about how to do that, and their symptoms often improve with appropriate care. We now know quite a lot about the underlying bodily processes and the factors that influence the development of functional and persistent physical symptoms. A consideration which influences consultations for chronic problems relates to the patient's style of attachment to significant others, especially to those who provide care. These attachment styles are often established in early childhood. If parenting has been sufficiently responsive, providing a secure and caring environment, children develop a secure attachment style into adulthood. They are able to, as both children and adults, it means that they can produce a coherent narrative and that they're able to reflect accurately on what they need and what others need or what other people may be thinking. And people with a secure attachment style have realistic expectations of care from others. If individuals with secure attachments develop persistent physical symptoms, they will often be able to overcome the problems by collaborating with their clinicians. In contrast, if parental care in childhood has been unreliable or inconsistent, children may develop an insecure attachment style. This means that there might be increased health anxiety and less coherent personal narratives. At times, those with insecure attachments will be hypersensitive to the negative intentions of others, being relatively less aware of the benign intentions of those giving care. Such patients may appear needy or unsatisfied, and this can make interactions with clinicians difficult. One effect of a needy style is to make clinicians hold such patients, as it were, at arm's length in case over-dependence develops. In turn, that has the effect of making an insecurely attached person feel more rather than less needy, and this may increase their demands or expectations from clinicians even further, especially if they're experiencing distressing persistent symptoms. This is not a beneficial cycle. Such patients find it hard to finish conversations as it feels like abandonment to them at an unconscious level. Gentle yet clear boundaries help here with consistent warmth and acceptance. In other patients, parenting might have been experienced in a cool, detached or neglective way and this can result in an avoidant attachment style developing. Such patients may have trouble seeking help or find it difficult to start conversations 
because those conversations might expose their vulnerabilities. They may be mistrustful and avoid close relationships, including those with their clinicians. They prioritise autonomy and self-care. They may delay seeking help for persistent physical symptoms. At times they will be wary of challenges to their autonomy and it requires tact and recognition of their need for personal control. Offering approaches which allow self-monitoring and assessment may be more fruitful. Such approaches offer a greater sense of personal control than perhaps firm instructions to do things in a certain way. Some children experience highly disorganised parents and they may develop a style which mixes insecure and avoidant attachment. And this is termed cautious or fearful attachment style. Disorganised parenting doesn't just mean that the parents don't know where your socks are kept. It means a chaotic style of relating where at times there may be warmth, at other times rejection or even violence. It means parents who are unpredictable and difficult. Patients who have experienced this may have learnt to cope with insecure attachment by avoiding too much social contact and avoiding making requests for help. Yet this might be accompanied by high levels of distress as well. This group may use healthcare erratically and they also have high rates of persistent symptoms. Their unspoken message is something like, I am hurting but I can't trust you to help me. Or more emotionally, I hate you but don't leave me. Most clinicians will easily recognise these styles in their patients. It's not helpful either to label such patients nor to blame them. These styles are unconscious and derived from childhood and are not in any way chosen by the patient. Rather, the understanding clinician will use their insight into attachment styles to provide consistent, kindly care without taking distress or neediness too personally. There are some very useful resources which can illustrate how childhood experiences alter attachment styles and they're referred to with details in the reference list attached to this chapter. I'm going to talk a bit more about the syndromes that come under the umbrella term persistent physical symptoms and talk about the factors and processes that create the conditions for those symptoms to persist. In the next podcast, I'm going to explain such syndromes in ways that help patients and clinicians to move forwards. So what kind of syndromes come under the umbrella term persistent physical symptoms? The most common symptoms that persist without structural deficits include back or joint pain, chronic persistent pains of all kinds, headache, weakness and fatigue, disturbed sleep, poor concentration, foggy thoughts, appetite and weight changes, chest pains, shortness of breath, palpitations, dizziness, a lump in the throat, nausea, bloating and bowel function disturbances. These are often described in symptom syndromes or clusters such as irritable bowel syndrome, tension headaches, fibromyalgia and older terms such as effort syndrome. From the list I gave it's clear that this can affect most systems in the body. So what are the factors and processes that create the conditions for such symptoms to persist? Recent neuroscience and endocrine research has clarified some of the ways in which there is a strong and reciprocal link between what happens in the body, especially after trauma or noxious stimuli, what happens to the brain as a result, 
and how that influences future experiences of pain and distress. The brain, the mind and the body are linked and they also affect each other in both directions. For example, if there is autonomic imbalance following chronic stress, this might cause disorders of gut motility with symptoms such as indigestion, nausea, bowel disturbance including diarrhoea, dry mouth and tightness in the throat. This is best explained in terms of muscle spasm or tightness in the gut, which can be relaxed with appropriate treatments. Excess adrenaline can result in symptoms such as rapid heartbeat and palpitations, chest tightness and breathlessness, dizziness, faintness, feeling lightheaded, feeling strange or spaced out, shakiness and tremor. Headache, muscle tension and neck stiffness, sweating and feeling hot or cold can all be associated with this. This will be improved with techniques that activate the calming parasympathetic part of the autonomic nervous system. Meditation, breathing techniques, distraction and counter-irritation techniques such as massage or rubbing on affected areas can all be employed to move the autonomic balance away from the adrenaline-fueled sympathetic towards a calmer parasympathetic response. This is thought to be largely mediated by the vagal nervous system. Chronic pain is due to abnormalities in the function of afferent nerves that detect painful or noxious stimuli. This can start with nerve irritation, for example, after a disc prolapse or after surgery, so that the pain fibres become chronically activated. This kind of chronic pain is often resistant to painkillers, although it may respond to drugs such as amitriptyline. This pain will be further exacerbated if there is also chronic autonomic imbalance over time. This causes changes in the part of the cerebral cortex called the insula, whose functions include the regulation of pain sensitivity. Overactivity of the sympathetic nervous system makes pain sensitivity increase even further and the central nervous system becomes increasingly sensitised to pain. When parasympathetic activity is stimulated, on the other hand, pain decreases. This is probably why ancient practices such as meditation, yoga and other forms of bodywork are so effective for health overall. They rebalance the autonomic nervous system, which allows pain to fade. Although sensory nervous system in the body sends signals to the brain, these are called afferent signals, this also results in signals that go the other way, and these are called efferent signals. These efferent signals can in turn alter the way that afferent signals work. For example, if we are anxious, let's say about a driving test coming up, the adrenaline produced may affect the way the gut functions. We might recognise this as the sort of butterflies in the stomach feeling we get. However, if we then start to interpret that feeling as a sign of disease, the brain becomes increasingly sensitised to subsequent afferent inputs about gut motility and the feelings may become stronger and more distressing, which may further reinforce the feeling that there is something actually wrong. This is not a conscious process, but it follows from the way our brains are wired. We're wired to scan our environment, both internal and external, paying greater attention to anything that is changing or which could be threatening to our well-being. Conversely, if we recognise that the butterflies in our stomach are merely a sign of anxiety, 
and we then distract ourselves by getting absorbed in another task, perhaps the driving test itself, maybe some calming music, then the brain becomes less sensitive to the afferent messages and they seem to fade away. Many life situations have similar physical effects and we talk about them. We talk about having a lump in my throat when feeling sad, or we say it's hard to swallow something that we resent hearing, or perhaps we refer to a difficulty as being a pain in the neck. Embarrassment is fully recognised as a psychological issue, and yet the blushing that results from embarrassment comes from actual physical changes. Sadness is an emotional state, but we cry really real tears as a result. Pressures and stresses from all aspects of life affect the way the body feels. When there is short-term acute stress, adrenaline is produced by the sympathetic nervous system to make the body ready for a fight or flight response. This is very familiar to most clinicians. When completely overwhelmed by fear or stress, for example, in some domestic abuse situations, or when there is fear of imminent death, the parasympathetic nervous system can become very active via the efferent vagus nerve. The response may then be to freeze, as some animals do, playing dead when under attack. Another response when overwhelmed is to fawn, which means trying to placate the attacker. These autonomic responses occur without people being consciously aware of them. Some people are not properly aware of how acute stresses affect the body and may misinterpret the signals. For example, the butterflies in the stomach one is a good one. Some people actually complain of nausea and vomiting before examinations and they feel, may feel so aware of their gut motility, which increases, that they do actually vomit. As we've already thought, the brain can then become further oversensitised to the incoming distress experiences so that they are experienced as signs of disease. The freeze response may even result in psychological dissociation phenomena, which can result in fainting. This can even appear similar to an epileptic fit, and sometimes this is referred to as NEAD, non-epileptiform attack disorder. When there has been longer term stress, or when there has been trauma, especially that persisting for long periods in childhood, we now know that this permanently alters the functions of the autonomic nervous system. That's the parasympathetic and sympathetic nerves. Autonomic imbalance affects the heart rate, gut motility and pain perception. This can be recognised clinically when hyperalgesia is noted, meaning a heightened perception of painful stimuli. So, for example, a small bruise feels very painful. Similarly, the phenomenon of allodynia, when non-painful stimuli are perceived as painful, a light stroke to the skin over the affected area is very painful, can also occur with autonomic imbalance. Finally, chronic trauma and stress alter the hormonal makeup of the body as a whole. The levels of cortisol are chronically raised. This predisposes to diabetes and high blood pressure, results in chronic inflammation, and also affects the sensitivity of nerves to pain, which makes chronic pain more likely. Clinicians need to be well informed themselves about the physiology of persistent physical symptoms so that they can discuss these matters confidently with patients. There are very useful accounts of different approaches in the written resources attached to this chapter. 
There's a useful website called curable.com which combines some free resources for clinicians and patients with some paid for content. The science discussions are very illuminating and there's a useful downloadable infographic at that site to help explain chronic pain. There's a very useful leaflet sized book that explains this for clinicians and patients alike called Pain is Really Strange and it's readily available. This podcast is part two. It concerns the module Talc Advanced Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning of Personalised Care and is part of the chapter Empowering Explanations for Persistent or Functional Symptoms. In the podcast part one, I talked about the background to these symptoms, how they arise, what we have to think about and how it is that modern neuroscience has rendered persistent or or functional symptoms explainable. We should abandon the term medically unexplained symptoms, which is not helpful to patients and often makes them feel as though they're being treated as if their pain or their suffering is imaginary. In this podcast, I'm going to focus much more on the explanation, how to explain such syndromes in ways that help clinician and patients move forwards. There's a lively interchange in both directions between body and mind, but it is not helpful to explain such symptoms simply in terms of psychological distress. And there are several reasons for this. If we use psychological explanations, patients take that to mean that you're really saying it's all in your head and that this really means that your suffering is not real or that your suffering is imaginary. This is very unhelpful and at times even cruel to those whose lives are a constant struggle with pain or other symptoms, which can have disabling effects on every aspect of life. While chronic or childhood trauma can be part of the predisposing conditions for persistent physical symptoms, this is not always the case. Even if the patient has experienced trauma, they may be unaware of it, for example, difficulties in infancy or very early life. If patients are aware of having suffered trauma or abuse, it's likely to be even more traumatising to be asked to revisit those events in a consultation in which they want to focus on their present pain and suffering. As the patient's distress is a bodily distress when there are persistent physical symptoms or functional symptoms, it makes more sense to use bodily explanations. And here are some principles for doing this. First of all, it's helpful to link symptoms to the physiology that underpins the functioning of different symptoms and to refer to generally understood processes such as sprains or tightness in the gut and using fight, flight, freeze or fawn responses in explanations. Explaining the effects of long-term stress may be useful on occasions to clarify how changes in hormones like cortisol can affect many systems in the body. It's helpful to have useful terms too. For example, the term wear and repair is positive and preferable to the term wear and tear, which is often used about OA. Wear and tear doesn't sound like something that you're going to get better from, does it? There are some other examples of possible explanatory approaches in the resources section of the written chapter document, which is in this module. Clinicians can also use jargon words such as allodynia or hyperalgesia, 
with clear explanations of these phenomena in simple language. Explaining to someone that, that they are suffering from allodynia, where minor stimuli such as light touch can be felt as painful, can be helpful. And also, naming the fact that their sensitivity is increased by calling it hyperalgesia can also be useful. It's possible to demonstrate this to patients. For example, it's quite often that areas of the body are very sensitive to light touch, which is felt as painful. And you can demonstrate to this by using a part of the body which is not painful and stroking it gently and saying this is a non-painful touch. Use the same touch on the painful area of the body and say, see how the same touch here is perceived as very painful. This is called allodynia. Learning that their experiences have a proper medical name can be helpful for those who feel that their suffering has not been recognised. Allodynia can occur in many different parts of the body, including such phenomena, phenomena as vulvodynia. Using these kinds of explanations can help to develop the understanding that not all hurt means harm. This is a really crucial concept. Some pain is helpful because after all it does help us to get our hands out of a fire quickly. But chronic pain is generally not linked to actual damage or actual harm in the body. It's better understood as the pain system itself becoming reset to a highly sensitive level, like a radio volume dial being turned up too high. Naming people's experiences and feelings accurately, for example hyperalgesia, and exploring their impact can help patients to feel better understood. Clinicians can record the symptoms as well as accurately naming and empathising with the feelings that the symptoms cause. You might want to look at talc skills for building effective relationships to develop this further. Another key idea is to use appropriate comparisons or metaphors, including explanations of the effects of a vicious circle, which can also be helpful. For example, if a muscle has been sprained over time, it hurts, but if the limb is held very still for a long time, it will become both weak and more stiff and more painful until it becomes chronically sore. Reversing this into a virtuous circle means gradually moving and using the limb more and more, even though this will be painful at first. This is a way of explaining that hurt does not always mean harm. I sometimes use the imagery of carrying something for example, my arm is completely normal, there's nothing wrong with it, but if I carry a heavy weight by holding it above my head for several hours, my arm will become extremely painful because of the muscle spasm that occurs. When I relax my arm and allow the spasm to reduce, the pain will gradually go away. A useful metaphor for chronic pain can be that of the body having hardware and software, a bit like a computer. The hardware may be intact as shown by normal tests and normal examinations, but things can still go wrong with the software, which is the brain and the nerves that run throughout the body. They may become wrongly calibrated and then malfunction. This is a bit like an intact computer, telephone or tablet, which may still malfunction because the internet's not properly connected or because an app doesn't work properly. I'm going to talk briefly about a very general approach to helping patients with persistent physical symptoms. This chapter is mostly about the explanation and understanding of those symptoms. 
The details of treatment and rehabilitation approaches will vary according to the specifics of the patient's condition and I can't consider those in detail here. I'm going to focus mostly on the consultation skills that assists in the process of acceptance, pacing, rehabilitation and long-term care. First of all, using positive words about treatment or management strategies in explanations around positive possible treatments can be very useful. This could include words such as ease, comfortable, soothing, relaxing, relief, fade away, and empowering words such as allow, for example, more mobility, or encourage calm breathing, or improve daily life. See also the TALC module skills for essential skills for effective explanations and planning of personalised care. Can words really be healing in their own right? And how to change everything by using the small words skillfully and but if when. Developing a long-term therapeutic relationship with the patient is another important matter. This should be based around empathic communication, acceptance and respect building on what is strong rather than focusing on what is wrong. The chapter called How to Enjoy Those Patients with Really Long-Term Problems, the Positive Bathe Method, can be very helpful here. Patients really value personal continuity of care, especially when they're suffering and pain are long-term. There's an interesting BBC podcast called Tell Me Where It Hurts, which explores this. And this is referenced in the written materials that accompany this chapter. Another principle is to aim to treat what is treatable. This will include treatments for comorbidities of all kinds. This may also mean offering the patient care and treatment for an anxiety or depression which is caused by their symptoms and their difficulties. Be careful not to imply that the anxiety or depression are the cause of the symptoms which is easily seen as another way of saying it's all in your mind. It can be more useful to say that chronic pain has a big impact on people, that it's very wearing and exhausting, and that sometimes this can even tip people into becoming depressed. Sometimes the disturbed sleep can also make people depressed, and sometimes tackling that with a specific antidepressant can improve sleep, which in turn improves depression, which in turn may make people feel a bit better, even if their pain doesn't change much. The other important thing is to talk appropriately about what hope might mean. In many situations, patients themselves have lost hope. If asked, they may say they're hoping for a miracle cure, which is a bit disheartening to clinicians who don't have access to miracles, which I think is most of us. Instead, it can be helpful to turn the conversations towards realistic aims and hopes that can be approached incrementally. If the patient's hope is to be pain-free, the clinician could frame the first steps towards this as being, let's begin by noticing the times when the pain is least severe, so that the positive bathe method approach can lead to discussions about how the patient accounts for that period of improvement, however modest in extent. What was happening at that time? And how could we create those conditions to make them more frequent? It's easy for clinicians to become affected by the hopelessness and suffering of patients with persistent physical symptoms and to feel that they do not have much to offer. However, we do now have helpful explanations for many of the predisposing and maintaining factors for such symptoms 
and we can provide empowering explanations and we can provide kindly, empathic and long-term care which empowers patients to help to develop solutions. In the context of an ongoing therapeutic relationship, this can lead to care plans made in collaboration with informed patients, personalised to their specific needs. A final consideration, which I'd like to recommend, is for all clinicians to understand the many and complex relationships between the early experiences of abuse and neglect and the experiences of distress and bodily symptoms in later life. These relationships are explored in a fascinating book called The Body Keeps the Score, which is referenced in the written materials, and also in the leaflet I recommended called Paid is Really Strange. Taking some time to deepen our own understanding of these matters can really help us to help our patients. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.